0: Welcome to the Minerals and Royalties Podcast, the home of CEOs and investors in the minerals and royalty space. Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. On April 12th, 2022, I moderated a panel around the topic, The Evolving Role of Private Equity in the Minerals and royalty Space. Speakers included Peter Ray, Principal of NGP, Alan Lee, SVP of the Opportunities Group at Oaktree Capital, and Eric Madrid, Managing Director of Post Oak Minerals. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Peter, Alan, and Eric had to say. Well, good morning, everyone, and, and thanks for joining Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim Pelham, the president of the Minerals and Royalties Authority. It's a specialist advisory firm focused on the mineral space that's content driven. So I use these webinars. I I run the Minerals and Royalties podcast. I have a, a YouTube channel for minerals clips. All this is put out with regularity to keep the industry up to speed on what's going on, but also to educate investors. So my main mission statement as a firm is to uh, bring awareness to the space and to bring new investors into the space and uh, one of the, the services we offer is to market map and educate investors on the trends and, and the basins and the opportunities and who the key players are to help them form strategic relationships with folks on the deal making side and also to enter their partnerships as an LP so if you're an investor listening out there and uh, we haven't met I'd love to jump on a call and get to know each other and and see if we can help you out on this journey uh, into the mineral space but uh, without further ado, I'll I'll kick it over to Peter to introduce himself and, and NGP and a little background on NGP's uh, track record in the mineral space. Peter, over to you. Thanks, Tim.
1: And uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Peter Ray. Uh, I'm a principal at NGP. I've been at the firm um, about eight years now. I started as an associate. I've been uh, lucky enough to, to kind of move up through the ranks. You know, Prior to that, I worked at Deutsche Bank for several years, uh, graduated from UT in 2011. NGP has been investing in upstream oil and gas for about 33 years. We started investing in minerals plus or minus about eight, eight years or, or so ago, mostly undeveloped minerals. But as, uh, as the industry transitioned, the basins were becoming more developed. A few years ago, we, we started raising NGP Royalty Partners. Uh, NGP Royalty Partners One, uh, we closed on uh, about a year or so ago um, and have been actively investing within that specific entity. And, uh, you know, have a, a couple of teams who are actively focused in deploying capital in both the Permian and the Hainesville. And uh, we're very excited about what we've been able to do with that specific fund. Uh, Tim, I'll kick
0: it back over to you. Awesome. Uh, Eric Madrid over at post?
2: Thanks, Tim. Well, first, I, I really want to appreciate you for creating this platform. And uh, so it's a plug for Tim. But it's been, for me personally, invaluable, uh, net, both educational and networking. And, uh, greatly accelerated my learning curve. Uh, really, really appreciate you creating this right. Simultaneously, as I was making the plunge into the mineral space, and uh, so pretty fortuitous uh, after being, yeah, you know, so my personally, about a 20-year energy finance professional, uh, classic, kind of started in investment banking. I did a stint at private equity uh, and also a private credit fund. And then, and about six years ago, made the plunge into the operating world, uh, moved actually out to Midland, I was there for a few years, and um, and now, as of a year ago, joined Post Oak, and so I've known, gotten to know the Post Oak guys over many years and had discussed a lot of different ideas of working together, and, and this uh, was a really neat opportunity where we could connect. Uh, so for Post Oak Minerals, the background, so really what this is is an internal platform uh, within inside of Post Oak Energy Capital. Uh, that we formed last year, uh, really first to manage all the existing assets that Post Oak had invested in. And so they, you know, throughout all their uh, last several funds, they've made a a very significant allocation to the mineral royalty space. It's been something that they they really have seen the value for a long time. And uh, so across all of that, we have about 48,000, a little over 48,000 net royalty acres, about half of that in the Permian uh, the balance is split pretty evenly between the Midcon and the Wilston. So really, really high quality portfolio. And we'll talk about the dynamics of, you know, why that's important to, to hang on to that asset base. Uh, currently, you know, plus or minus given, you know, the strips obviously bouncing around, but it's about a $70 million run rate cash flow business today. Uh, so really, you we'll get into more details as we get through the discussion, but you know, the idea around post minerals, it's, it's really twofold. One, it, it facilitates, our ability to uh, hold on to the existing asset base, which we think is, is very compelling for uh, Post Oaks investors. And then two, by uh, it, it enables us to raise sp- bespoke and dedicated pools of capital uh, that are structured around the unique characteristics of minerals. And that I think will be very powerful as we try to deploy capital, uh, which we intend to do, um, but having that pool of capital that's structured accordingly uh, will, will give us the competitive ability to do that. And so as part of coming here. So what we did is, you know, I joined uh, first, just as me, I hired a, a lean dedicated team. Uh, we're co-located. So we're actually inside of Post Oaks, you know, private equity office. Uh, we work daily integrating. We're very closely coordinated with the with the PE professionals and their investment team. And there's a lot of synergies around that. They've got a lot of insights across their portfolio. They're looking at deals every day. They have, you know, prospective teams. So there's just a, a lot of knowledge. And uh, in our, what we intend to do is to be able to you know, figure out how to harness that and give us some proprietary edge. And uh, the, really what we're right now very actively trying to do is ramp up our BD efforts, uh, find creative ways to deploy capital. Uh, we're looking at anything from kind of $10 million on the low end to you know, $100 million, possibly more on any given deal. Uh, we're looking across five basins, um, really, really probably any core key U.S. Uh, basin we, we would be interested and so yeah part of this as well is we're hoping to get our story out there and, and interface and meet people that can help bring us
0: interesting ideas or would want to partner or work with us thank you eric and uh finally over to alan which he's a champ he's doing this from from vacation so alan i appreciate you tuning in um, hopefully uh you can get back to the pool wherever you are soon but
3: yeah no happy to do it and uh thanks for coordinating this tim it's uh it's a great event, and, and Peter and Eric uh, excited to be on the panel with you guys. Um, so I'll give you a quick... Background on, on Oak Tree for, for those people that aren't familiar. Um, you know, we're an asset manager based in Los Angeles, and I work in the opportunities funds within Oak Tree, uh, which is Oak Tree's largest pool of capital, and uh, have about $40 billion in assets under management for, for the ops funds, and currently investing out of funds 10B and 11, which is a, a $25 billion fund complex between the two. Um, we don't do energy exclusively. We're, we're generalists across all sectors, but energy has been our, our biggest focus for really the last two, two and a half years and our largest sector of deployment um, and, and exposure. So very, you know, very focused on the space and and in particular the, the mineral space. It's, it's one that we like and have been active in. Um, I'd say we have three primary platforms, uh, two of them which are currently active with the first one being Providence Minerals and kind of a JV that we have with Mike Allen, uh, Luke Allen, kind of Phil Ream and the team out of Dallas. So there we're focused on acquiring minerals uh, across all basins, but, you know, the bulk of the deployment and focus has been in the core of the, the Permian and the Haynesville. So that's a team where we're kind of actively looking at a lot of different opportunities and and we've been working with Luke and, and Phil and the guys for for over a year now and, and have been, you know, really excited about the partnership that we've built. We also uh, have a portfolio company uh, called Desert Peak, which uh, we merged the source energy assets into. And there where uh, you know, I'd say a, a minority shareholder uh, and partner with Kimmeridge and Blackstone. Um, but one of the, you know, largest pure play kind of minerals platforms out there, the bulk of the focus is in the Permian um, and we, you know, just, uh, I'm sure most of you know, just merged uh, Desert Peak into Falcon with the closing expected in Q2 of this year, but they're, you know, work closely with the Kimmeridge and Blackstone guys and Chris and the Desert Peak team on, on the mineral space, you know, largely focused on, on bigger acquisitions and the opportunity to continue to roll up the sector and uh you know three kind of we've uh worked a lot with the source energy guys so brandon benson and jared sort of been out of uh, out of dallas as well you know there we had a, a long partnership dating dating back to 2017 um and those guys have, have done a really nice job for us and you know not not kind of a, a current platform that that we're deploying capital with today but still in regular dialogue with them and, and have had a, a great partnership with them over the years So I'll pause there, Tim, and and kick it back over
0: to you. Hey, guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well-positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Is your team interested in de-risking their underwriting on minerals acquisitions? What about maximizing the value of your minerals on exits? Source Energy is pioneering energy intelligence to help you stop guessing when, where, and if wells are going to be drilled and completed on your minerals. If you're interested in tracking daily frac crew activity, buying white space before permits are filed, buying permitted acres just before the rigs show up, buying minerals at permit pricing when drilling is in progress, buying ducts with imminent flush production, or maximizing the value of your permits and ducks any time you exit your minerals, then please visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at for a free demo. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at c.morris@nobleroyalties.com at or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Well, perfect. Well, um, you know, it's worth going to listen to it. If if you didn't tune into the original PE webinar I did, it was end of November, December, 2020. And so at the time the topic was, is, is PE the wrong cost of capital for minerals? And that doesn't really get talked about anymore because private equity looks and feels so different. There's so many different strategies and it's evolved. There's royalty specific funds out there. Um, and that's why I wanted to do like a 2.0 version of, of this discussion, cause it's quite a bit different than it was a year and a half ago. So the first question I wanna kick off on is what is the preferable strategy? Is it port coast and, and multiple teams and strategies or is it a centralized platform? Uh, I think when private equity started, it was just like other private equity uh, you know, strategies and EMP and midstream, it was multiple teams, typically base and focused. And now you've seen a a dichotomy really. Uh, You've seen a fork in the road and some PEs have gone for that one platform and others have have continued to have multiple strategies. And we have a good cross section here on the panel, but before the panelists uh, address that, I I just wanna paint the universe for everyone so you can have an idea. So in the singular platform camp, you have NCAP. Uh, NCAP had multiple teams and they consolidated them all in uh, the vehicle now called NCAP Minerals, which also is the same as the Pegasus team. Tailwater Capital is a new player in the space. They have backed Tailwater Royalties. Old Ironsides, a new entrant into the space as well, backing Trinity. Um, EMG backs uh, Chris Beato. Chris Beato, everyone will know him from Rocking WW. They also recently just took over all the Heritage Mineral uh, assets, and so they're now managing that uh, across for EMG as a single team. You have Kimridge, whose main vehicle is Desert Peak Minerals. And then on the multiple strategy side, you have Denim Capital, uh, Haymaker, Horizon, Live Oak, uh, Apollo. You know, Wilson wasn't able to join us, but you know, Apollo has multiple strategies. They have the partnership with Noble Royalties and, and Scott's team. Uh, they're working with Bandera and Chris Transier uh, with their insurance money. They're also working with Momentum uh, with, with insurance capital. Quantum has Stonehill foundation. They have a partnership with Dale. Uh, they have a partnership with EQT on the credit side. Lime Rock has two vehicles that have been around forever, San Jacinto and Crown Rock. And then Ridgemont has a couple of, of vehicles, Riverbend and Hatch. So, uh, and then one to throw in there is KKR. I, I think a KKR is a bit of a hybrid. You know, KKR is centralized. They do have it on their own balance sheet, but they do a lot of, a lot of co invests and a lot of partnerships. So that's the universe. Uh, I'll kick it back over to the panelists now to talk about how and why their firms have, have kind of gone down the road this way. Uh, Eric, why don't you kick it off? You guys just, you have some updates internally on this and there's rationale on having one platform. So talk to us about the perspective of Postdoc and what you guys been up to.
2: Uh, Yeah, you bet. So for post, uh, you know, the thesis and it's been something interestingly that I think internally way predating me has been an idea incubating and then on it and then a couple of others, yeah, went to that approach and, and sort of blazed the trail a little bit, Uh, but it it made a lot of sense to create a centralized in house platform, like truly centralized co located sharing a lot of resources, and to roll all the existing assets so one obvious benefit is it's going to materially reduce the overhead. So, and, and hopefully we can ultimately roll this into a single ownership structure. And yeah, you know, so every, everything is combined, you know, one lean team and uh, we have just five dedicated professionals. We share a lot of resources. Uh, we outsource everything that makes sense to outsource. Everything's into a single land system, single accounting system. So, and if the idea is to own this for a long time and you can, um, you know, reduce the overhead pretty meaningfully, that, that creates a lot of value as you compound that, those annual savings. And then secondarily, being centralized, you know, and I think Oak in particular, we've really fully embraced the idea of, of the synergies of just daily, you know, being truly inside the tent and, and sharing and collaborating with the PE professionals, uh, I do think over time, this could evolve really more from a BD standpoint. So we are very open to the ideas of over time, like working with individuals and or whole teams uh, really around BD, like how do we capture, and deploy capital? Uh, and, you know, that's I think to really do that effectively and at the scale that we'd like to do, uh, we we will entertain partnerships and that could take a lot of forms. It could be very informal, Or maybe start informal uh, over time, it could become more formalized. And so, yeah, we're not precluding the idea of having some types of arrangements uh, with people over time. But I do think from the management of the platform, the platform will be very centralized.
0: Peter, you guys have been one of the longer standing investors in minerals, and you've had uh, multiple teams over the years. I would say, you guys have multiple strategies uh, elaborate on it um and you you've had a lot of success with these teams and strategies so how does ngp view the world uh, from the lens of this question yes yeah, so we've been investing for about
1: eight years or so and de- deployed about a billion dollars of capital plus or minus you know started mostly in undeveloped minerals and really started the same kind of framework that we have with our operating businesses which is back best-in-class entrepreneurs uh, make sure everybody's aligned, and then go execute on a business strategy. That worked out really well. Uh, we had great results um, generally in the Permian, but also invested in MidCon. And then uh, we ended up partnering with Darren Zanovich and the Mason team over the last couple of years and have built a pretty sizable position within the Hainesville. I would say our strategy uh, evolved as the basins evolved, which was there's not as much white space on the map anymore assets are getting bid down to levels that have just a lower risk profile and therefore didn't fit our flagship funds anymore. And so uh, we raised a bespoke you know, type of capital for that. That was NGP Royalty Partners closed on that fund about a year or so ago. And that fund is really focused on cash flowing minerals that have downside protection. That's worked out really well because that's where the basins have gone. Uh, if you look at a map, it's amazing the number of sticks that have been drilled. If you just look at the Permian over the past eight years, it's about, you know, four times the number of PDP wells that were there in 2015. Um, so our, our approach has really been the same the type of assets that we focused on has changed, uh, where it fits more of that profile that we're looking for than uh, NGP royalty partners. As it relates to teams, you know, we've really high graded over time and, and tried to partner with the absolute best teams that we've been in business with for a long time. Nick Farrell team, who I know has been on your podcast a couple of times, Tim, uh, is a very, very successful entrepreneur. Um, we love the partnership that we have with the Wing uh, team as a whole. Partnered with Darren about a year or so ago. And, and um, I would say that really kind of changed our strategy from being 100% ground game focused to really a bifurcated strategy, which is really ground game plus large scale acquisitions. We were successful in a large scale acquisition last summer. And then Elk Range, uh, which is led by Charlie Schufeld, you know, they've really been focused on building both a ground game and a large scale acquisition type of platform. So I would say our approach is opportunistic at the end of the day. Uh, We want to find value where, you know, wherever we best can. Sometimes large scale acquisitions have the best value. Sometimes it's just on the ground game. So that ebbs and flows over time. But I would say we generally have had the most success partnering with really talented entrepreneurs, getting aligned with them, and then being opportunistic you know, you could sell in a year or you could hold for 10 years. Um, There's no, there's, I would say we underwrite assets to hold them for life. But with minerals and royalties, as I think probably everybody knows on this call, there's so much optionality in the asset class, where you can sell half, you can sell a third, you can hold on to it, you can distribute it in kind. It just provides a lot of optionality, which then, you know, I think is just a valuable asset class at the end of the day. And so uh, that's really what we've tried to focus on in NGP is, is partner with really good teams, but then also be opportunistic if if it makes sense to do so.
0: Yeah, I think what's really interesting about, you know, NGP royalty partners and and what that enables you to do is participate in these larger scale opportunities, more cash flowing in nature. Um, You know, for years, everyone would talk about, okay, we need more insurance companies to come in. We need large pensions. We need these big, large end buyers that want yield, and um, we need more options than just the publics. And so there have been new entrants, I would say one, maybe two a year, but they're not running in the space. And the, and the folks that can afford hundred plus million dollar transactions, which is what a PE portfolio is going to be on, on the exit side. You know, I, I think the title of this webinar, The Evolving Role of PE, PE is filling that gap. Um, you're going out. Two institutions who can't go direct or don't have the check sizes or the appetite to take something 200 million in size on their own, so you're creating the funds to then to then do that, and it's not out of your traditional flagship funds that uh, need to be more ahead of the drill bit. So uh, that's been a really interesting development over the last few years, and and definitely I think is it fair to say, Peter? So you have Darren and Nick are definitely kind of your more traditional entrepreneurial they're looking to build and up and sell it they can time it nick's done it twice darren's done it twice including haymaker elk range is is that the longer term strategy they're i know charlie and team have a bigger staff they have the back end for the minerals management um it's a very different looking machine than than mesa and wing is that really is it is it set up for the long term is that a fair assessment for ngp Yeah, I would say, you know, I'd echo
1: Eric's uh, commentary, which is, you know, over time, making sure that the cost structure is right uh, makes a ton of sense. So we've kind of built in that flexibility uh, because these assets could be held for 15 plus years uh, or even longer. And so making sure that you have a low cost structure is really important. And that's what we've done with Elk Range is make sure we kind of have that flexibility over time. But, you know, what, what Nick and team have been able to do and Darren and team have been able to do by just investing that capital and moving on to the next silo and investing that capital while still managing, I'll call it a legacy portfolio. Uh, just once again, kind of creates a lot of optionality where you can sell those assets together. You can buy undeveloped minerals in, uh, in kind of, I'll call it the higher rate of return uh, type of funds that has more risk. Um, and then you can always sell those assets together uh, with the buyer allocating value. So just a lot of flexibility and um, that ultimately you know, has, has paid dividends. And I think that's, um, you know, made, made NGP, uh, and I guess in, in our words, and we're obviously biased, but you know, a, a really good partner and uh, that we have that flexibility. Um, the last point, Tim, and then I'll uh, toss the mic back to you is just, you know, we have about 30 rigs running in our portfolio today. You know, NGP is the largest consolidated driller uh, in the U.S. with over half of those rigs in the Permian, probably closer to two thirds. So we receive a lot of data points uh, at NGP and, and that really helps inform our mineral strategy, not necessarily under the drill bit always, but, um, just the amount of data that we receive is very valuable in terms of the types of deals that we wanna do, but also the deals we wanna pass on uh, just because we, we receive a lot of that data at NGP and, and you know, really use that information to help guide
2: our acquisition strategy.
0: Are you growing and looking to bring on additional members to your team? The Minerals and Royalties Authority is now offering recruitment and staffing services to the broader minerals and royalty space. Whether you're looking for engineering, business development, land, finance or management level executives, our team has got you covered. By leveraging our industry-leading network and content platform, our team is able to canvas the market to identify, vet, and recruit the right executives that are fit for your team. If you're interested in learning more on how the Minerals and Royalties Authority can help you with your staffing and recruiting needs, then please email me at tim at yeah, one of my favorite quotes. Uh, I've mentioned this before. Josh Camp, the CEO of Perpetual, did a podcast in April of 2020, and he, he went on a little mini rant about how private equity is is by far the best strategy for minerals because of you know the, the synthetic portfolio that you have with all the rigs and all the data, and just all the different ways you can leverage that. And that's the space is 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 gravitating towards that more and more uh, every day. So I always love that soundbite. Um, I'll. I'll pull it up and I'll I'll post it on the on LinkedIn the next few days just so everyone can can hear what I'm uh, talking about. Alan, over to you. So it's hard to to put five hundred million dollars to work in the mineral space, but you guys have had success. You just had uh, an exit and or, are or, or on online to get to the public markets. But explain to me just the strategy and the rationale and and how you guys have re- approached it in terms of the teams and the strategies you're going to pick.
3: Yeah, look, and I think it's a fascinating question, Tim. You know, first of all, across the energy sector, you've you've seen just such a move towards so- scope and scale and, and free cash flow. And I still think even across different sectors of upstream and and minerals, you're you're still in kind of call it early to middle innings of consolidation, just given the fragmentation in the space and and the ability to continue to consolidate, generate synergies, and and really build a company that can one roll up assets, but two uh, has an attractive currency and is attractive to a broad investor base. You know, I'd say kind of on the, the desert peak side, what, what we're excited about, you know uh, with, with Kimbridge and Blackstone is, is having a platform that is well positioned to be a consolidation consolidator in the Permian and uh, and have an attractive currency. And, and there we're focused on much larger scale deals, which can be funded with a combination of, of cash and stock and and really be a, a vehicle that for other, you know, private equity firms, especially who are looking to, to exit portfolios, um, they can kind of be a partner with Desert Peak and, and, and have an attractive currency to kind of attach to. Um, so, you know, for us, I'd say philosophically on the Oak Tree side, we we focus on the teams that, you know, kind of like Peter talked about earlier that we think are very high quality management teams. You know, at the end of the day, we think that is the biggest driver of your ultimate results and finding the right partners in the space and the right experts uh, is the most important thing. Um, so for us, we like having multiple teams because it felt that like for us, it really builds the deal funnel and we feel like allows us to maximize different opportunities we see and different ways we can deploy capital. Um, so we kind of view Desert Peak as as you know that larger uh, scale, call it a uh, portfolio company that can target larger deals. And, you know, what we're really excited about, you know, the Providence uh, team and kind of what they've been able to do is they, you know, target, I'd say on average, uh, a lower check size, they have the flexibility to to go larger, but there, you know, we have about 13,000 NRA today, you know, I think our average check size to date is kind of, you know, our sweet spot is been in that five, to ten million dollar deal range, which you know for us a fundamental tenant of of Tree across all sectors is 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 finding inefficient markets, and you know in general we've found that to be a more inefficient part of the market than some of the the larger um, packages, and even on some of the larger PE deals where we've you know we've thought. You know, you'd have very few parties show up to the table. we have definitely seen processes recently that attract a lot of attention and and a lot of teams willing uh, and sponsors willing to to write a big check. So there, it's you know uh, we, we you know with Providence we feel like we're focusing on, on a different part of the market and we think there's you know potentially a future opportunity for you know just segmenting the mineral space into different teams that target slightly different aspects of it. And then have the teams kind of work together and collaborate, and, and ultimately deploy capital in, in a sector that we find attractive.
0: Yeah, no, the Phil and, and Luke and team have, have done a good job. They have that not too hot, not too cold, you know, just right size <laughs> transactions, and they've 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 done well um, at it. And I think you're right. It is it's it's an interesting size. It's typically too big for family offices, and a lot of those folks who can make the ground game competitive. Um, but for for a lot of the folks who are looking for larger deals the diligence it takes a similar amount of work and so they they just kind of pick and choose their spots and they decide well if we're gonna spend our resources and time on a transaction we'd rather if we can get some across the line we'd rather be the big ticket right so thanks for the the background and walking through all that guys uh, let's talk about fundraising you know private equity is in the business of fundraising that's what what makes you guys such an attractive option? Uh, as Brian Thomas of Prudential says, uh, perpetually being on the bent knee, going around to institutions, and and always you know going out and, and raising money, it's difficult. I think private equity is always continually raising for the next fund or the ongoing, and and through cycles like COVID and oil going negative, it, it's challenging. I think everyone always talks about and opines no that they want to go direct, they want to get a big. Slug of capital and they're gonna sit there with a hundred million or two hundred million from a pension and they'll be able to beat people on the ground with, with underwriting just on a cost of capital alone. And what a lot of folks find is it's A, you need the Rolodex. Everyone thinks it's just the Rolodex, but B, it's fundraising in itself is a totally different skill set, background. It takes time and, and a lot of time. And so if you have a team of 10, 12 people. Uh, even if you you know you're all all the members of the team are have done well uh, financially and are coming off a few hot exits, do they want to fund GNA out of their own pocket uh, for 18 months, 24 months? Do they want to take the opportunity cost of missing deals for 18 to 24 months? And I think the, the there's a few out there that have had a lot of success, but the others you know you can go to a private equity firm. And negotiate a term sheet and get going with a big commitment in a month. Um, a lot of these guys have relationships. You know, two three months maybe. I saw a Peter raise his eyebrow there. Maybe it takes a little longer. But um, talk to me just about the fundraising process and and why private equity might want to create specific vehicles just for the minerals asset class versus traditional flagship funds. Who wants to to take it first?
2: I'll go first and uh, just to kind of keep it in order. But I think it's it's a couple rationales behind it. But I think the biggest driver around mineral and royalties is just the asset class. is just the uniqueness of it. And to be, uh, one, to, to you want a longer duration. So the value creation cycle for minerals is just naturally longer. Uh, so mostly your traditional you know, upstream and midstream investments, is, which is what most of the flagship PE funds have been you know, preponderantly doing. Those are like around concrete projects that got typically, you know, three, four or five year uh, natural cycle where you're buying something, drilling wells, building a pipe, and then, you know, that's the the steep value creation curve. Then there's hopefully a natural exit. Minerals, like you buy it, then it yields back. It's just a long-term value creation cycle. So you want a vehicle that accommodates that. And then also naturally, because it's lower risk, you're um, you're 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 always within the PE model, pushing the boundaries of trying to be competitive, but but make threshold returns. And so with with the mineral royalty fund, you could structure it to naturally bring down that cost of capital. And then since we are, you know, as as we talked about, like the basins are so much more mature, so you know that's just going to bid down. Like there's so much data out there, there's not a lot of secrets as to like where the basins work and even spacing and type curves and things like that. So incrementally, you're kind of bidding down that cost of capital because the outcomes are narrow. So again, it just accommodates our ability to be competitive. Then also finally, just, the, the LPs like it. Um, they, they seem to be really responsive uh, to, and so ultimately what PE uh, managers also should be doing is delivering, creating and, and bringing products that their investors like, and it's gotten a really favorable reception. And uh, so- Obviously, we we'll, you know we want to create the products that are uh, that that investors are seeking out.
0: Can Can anyone talk to the inflationary environment and how minerals is really such a great you know solution to that as a hedge on on, on energy costs going forward? Um, is that uh, has anyone seen a difference in appetite or different players coming in as a result of the inflationary environment as it pertains to you know, investing in, in a minerals vehicle?
3: Yeah, I, I'm happy to take a crack at that one. it's definitely something that we've gotten feedback from, you know, I say, especially kind of through the last earnings cycle, just given the amount of cost inflation. And, you know, everybody I'm sure on this phone sees it across the Permian, across the service sector where inflation's coming in really hot and higher than expected this year. And, it, and it's likely gonna persist uh, for the balance of the year. So. In general, I'd say we've noticed a, a kind of shift in, in, in investor sentiment a little bit across energy. You know, you saw mass migration, I'd say, in in interest being, you know, lower in the space, I'd say over the past couple of years, you know, partially ESG driven, but also partially just given the run that oil had in the years leading up to 2020, uh, which, you know, for us at Oak Tree, we feel like created uh, a lot of opportunities to, To kind of jumping a sector where others were were pulling out, um, and uh, you know zigging where others are are zagging, you know so to speak. So for us, you know you've seen you've seen environment where now you're attached to an asset class uh, in minerals that doesn't have any exposure to inflation. You still have high free cash flow yields, um, you know, kind of across the space. Uh, They're not as high as some of the ENPs offer this year, which is an area of, of pushback that. That you get, you know, I'd say from the public markets investors who are, you know, in terms of the generalists coming back into the space, they may look at oil as more of a short-term trade and they may view ENPs as a way to get, you know, sometimes mid-20s, high, twenties free cash flow yields and, you know, kind of mid-teens kind of return of capital between dividends and and buybacks. Um, but you know, from our view, it's uh the mineral side is much more downside protected, you know, and kind of any sensitivities you run across kind of different oil price scenarios, you have the ability to not have any exposure to any of the cost inflation. And then from the private side, you know, we, we still think it's a market where you're, you're buying at attractive free cash flow yields, you know, I'd say Oak Tree maybe is a little unique philosophically. And like, we like to hedge uh, for a minerals business, which you know, you can definitely make the argument that minerals businesses don't need a hedge because there's no CapEx program to protect. And um, you just don't have the same cost structure you're looking to support. But from our perspective, it's it's a way to kind of lock in the returns, especially at current commodity prices. So I'd say, especially on the private side, we you know, for RLPs, they they like us having uh, exposure to an asset that's in good areas, is downside protected, and high, has really high cash flow yields that we've you know, locked in a good amount of that uh, on, on kind of PDP through through hedging. So it's uh, we think a, a pretty compelling story in this in this environment.
0: How do Peter and uh, Eric? How do you guys view hedging as a as a policy? Is it transaction by transaction, portfolio wide? This kind of gets into one of the topics I wanted to cover around you know, financially engineering returns or, and and putting in downside protection to via the appetite of investors, etc. But how do, how do you guys view hedging?
1: Yeah, I would say we're we're uh, pretty similar to how Alan thinks about it, which is you know really protect the cash flow that you can. Um, you know, you're you're underwriting several reserve categories, and if you can lock in the PDP cash flow, you know if it's at the right time in the market, then you know we absolutely do that. And you know for better or for worse, we, you know we have a lot of hedging losses. Well, what does that mean? Usually, rig count moves up, uh, ducks are completed faster, permits are drilled faster. Um, and ultimately, cash flow ramps as a whole. So, you know, like uh, like the way we've been thinking about it for a lot of time uh, with our upstream business is it's a way to protect the downside and to ensure that you're able to um, you know generate you know those those distributions that we're forecasting when we're underwriting a specific acquisition. We not only hedge at acquisition, but then we top up you know effectively on a quarterly basis as WIPs are completed uh, to PDP. as wells as are online, just continuing to lock in that cash flow. We don't use a lot of debt, um, you know, maybe 10% kind of debt to, debt to overall kind of deal size. Um, so it's it's generally de minimis. Um, and that, you know, frankly, just adds a little bit, but it's, it's not a financial engineering where it's 30 to 50% of a, of a purchase price. We just don't view do, this asset class as having um, you know, that type of uh, leverage profile when you don't control ultimately uh, anything other than just, you know, the PDP cash flows, which are still kind of subject to the operators. Um, you know, discretion if they want to shove in wells or offset frackets, et cetera. Um, so I would say we try to honor the strategy as a whole, which is low risk, and then protect that, you know, through hedging as best we can, keep the balance sheet clean. And, um, you know, well, really... that to to ratio you guys typically like to... Optimize? It's going to be substantially below one times. Um, it's a It's a lightly levered type of asset class. If you ever want to, you know, accelerate distributions, you could think about it you know, on the flip side, not necessarily an acquisition, but kind of lever up to pull some cash out of the business. Uh, we haven't necessarily needed to do that at this point in time. We've generally either sold assets or just cash flowed them, uh, but, that, but that's always an opportunity that you have with this asset class. And if you were to do that, then I would expect uh, that we would hedge um, just to be able to protect that cash flow and protect the balance sheet. Uh, but that's generally kind of how we've thought about it. The, the biggest focus on minerals and royalties is the buy, as we all know. Um, you know, the purchase price that you pay is generally going to be the main determinant of your return. Um, so finding really good acquisitions, backing teams that can find those really good acquisitions is the key aspect of a successful mineral and strategy, in our opinion.
2: So interesting, it'll be a slight contrast for Post Oak is that our, our portfolio today is 100% unhedged and unlevered. So we're getting, um, you know, all the direct exposure and interestingly, I think right, right now and you know, as, as Oak talks to its LPs on a regular basis, in a, in a world where you got 40 year high inflation, you know, very negative real interest rates, you know, a lot of elevated asset prices across a lot of different asset classes. You know, there's not a lot of safe harbors out there and, um, and ways to insulate yourself from, from all of those um, dynamics in the world. And minerals seems to be one of the better, you know, minerals and potentially some other commodities, but you know, it's one of the better tools out there, you know, something that has pure commodity exposure without direct exposure to the OPEX and the CAPEX. So, uh, again, in the, in the context of kind of delivering, you know, what today uh, the LP seem to uh, want and they're, they're trying to find, um, you know, offsets in their portfolio. To the, to the inflation impacts, it, it definitely seems to resonate. Uh, that, that could definitely change in different environments. So that's not like a forever locked in stone uh, philosophy, but that's the approach uh, on, on an acquisition basis. And it's something that, you know, it's, it's we have good discussions, you know, deal to deal, but, you know, we have a lot of capacity, you know, basically by virtue having an unlevered uh, portfolio. And as we see that, you know, it, it is quite competitive. So Using a modest amount of leverage to enable us, uh, but still on a, on a consolidated basis or uh, relative even to that specific acquisition, yeah, you know, very very modest, very safe amount of leverage. Uh, what will, will give us, uh, yeah, it's it's an easily available tool, and and personally believe that we should be utilizing that to, to make sure we get putting our best foot forward and into the ultimately able to capture quality assets.
3: I was going to say, kind of on the, it's an interesting point that. Eric makes, you know, in terms of kind of what, what your LPs are looking for, you know, uh, we do have the, the discussion a lot on the Desert Peak side in the boardroom of a lot of investors hold Desert Peak because they want the oil exposure. You know, as, as a result, the, the current hedging policy is to, to to be unhedged. You know, there's certainly a debate to be had of, you know, some investors only for the yield, not necessarily the oil price exposure. But I think thinking through that you know ultimate investors is super important and from the oak tree side you know we're, we're not focused on only energy in our funds and you know i'd say one interesting perspective on oil and gas is it's by far the most liquid hedging market you have across any commodity um, which is very unique and now with kind of prices where they are you know some portfolios where you've bought you know where you were kind of going to get a seven to eight year payback on, on your acquisition. And then kind of, you know, that's accelerated to now some, some deals that you've done, you're looking at, you know, four to five years payback, and then you kind of have a free option behind that. So for us, we, we kind of look at that type of profile and, and try to hedge uh, where we can as kind of cash flows come on. And I think Peter makes a great point of, you know, which is exactly how we think about it, is you still may maintain a lot of upside on commodity price from ducks and and just value of, of the acreage and rigs accelerating cash flow. So you're still rooting for higher cash flows and if that causes hedge losses, like it's a, it's a great problem to have.
0: Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at royalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast, E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcasts, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Predicting operator behavior is the name of the game in the mineral space, but using permits and rig locations alone to do this is not enough. Detecting well pads and frack ponds in order to see which permits are on the rig schedule, discount permits that won't ever be sputted, and determine which ducks are next up on the frack schedule is key to de-risking your underwriting. By using satellite imagery and AI, Source Energy shows oil-filled well pad construction before permits are filed, shows frack pond filings even before the crew arrives, and shows pinpoint frack crew movements daily, so you can get ahead of drilling activity and completions. If you're interested in leveraging this technology to revolutionize your ground game, then please feel free to visit www.sourceenergy.com or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. It, it may be a bit too early to to see the effects of this, but in terms of investor sentiment, everything going on with the Ukraine, you know, it, it's it's kind of interesting that oil and gas can can be a, a bit of a humanitarian savior in a way, uh, with Russia and the oil embargoes and people, you know, refusing to do business with Russia, et cetera. You know, you see how uh, Europe is a bit hostage and oil and gas in north america is a great you know replacement for that potentially has there been less vilification you know around the context of that you also have prices going up with the pumps um is there any type of center around hey we need to increase supply and just any type of tailwinds that can be ridden out of all the macro uh, economical situations that are going on in the world is it too early to see any type of noticeable will change in the investor world or is is that starting to are you start starting to see hints of that? I would say the
1: narrative has changed, but you know, it was a I think it was a difficult last 10 years for a lot of investors within energy. And so, you know, just generally speaking, a lot of capital has left the system, which is great for those who are still in the system and have access to capital. Uh, but a lot of capital has left the system. It's starting to change, but, but Tim, I, I do not see, and, you know, of course, we could be wrong. I, I do not see the types of capital that flooded in 2015, 2016 in the oil and gas private equity. We had 90 plus billion dollars in dry powder. I I, I I don't see that at all coming back.
2: Got it. Yeah, I agree. Like when you've made a hard commitment saying we're out of this uh, forever, then to immediately go back in. But some, I think definitely the tailwinds are a lot. I mean, it's just, Unbelievable how much different and better it feels to be in the space where, you know, two years ago, getting these, you know, kind of ridiculous comparisons to like tobacco and things like that. It's just it's just unbelievable. And then now, like people just in a broader sense, appreciating really how vital it is to energy security, to you know standards of living. Uh, just to the world in a broader appreciation. So that, that matters, um, certainly. And then also just getting some distance from the period where all that capital poured in and, and, and a lot of that was destroyed. And now, you know, seeing all, you know, that, this, that the economics are terrific and that's actually flowing through, not just to, you know, spreadsheet economics that didn't translate into real life economics because all the assumptions are wrong, but actually, you know, sustainable really, Top level and also net to the investor, uh, sustainable economics, and then also with the with the discipline that seems is going to be with us for a, a long enough to where everybody looks at it and says we've got a really great, if three, four, five year runway. You know, if maybe will I mean, it's a commodity business. We'll probably ultimately screw it up again. We always do, but it's going to be a while before that happens. So you've got a really nice runway. So if you're if you're raising a fund today it feels pretty good in terms of like that investment period and horizon um, in terms of allocating capital, if you've got the the mandate to do so.
3: Uh, I was going to say kind of from our perspective, like ESG is is here to stay. It's it's not going away and it's led to a lot of capital flight from from industry, which we feel like created this opportunity where you're buying kind of PDP assets on the upstream side for two to three times EBITDA and, and you know, we, we were buying kind of, first sling RBL portfolios at, at kind of from banks at big discounts to par and you saw a large shift in kind of pressure of of people having to sell, uh, both for, you know, ESG reasons and also just partially just performance of the sector. You know, we think kind of this we think that theme is here to stay, but the everything that's happened in Ukraine, we think has, has perhaps slowed that. Um and we're, you know, at Oak tree big believers in kind of energy transition and the importance of everything in the industry of getting us from here to a state of the world where, you know, you're, you're a hundred percent clean energy, but it's a extremely long path to get from here to there. And it's important for the world to kind of have energy sources here in the U S and, and have cheap, cheap energy for consumers. You know, I'm, I'm here in, in Europe on kind of vacation for the week and it's $8 a gallon of gas right now, which is just crazy. Right. So I think everything that's happened is, is kind of a, you know, obviously extremely sad, but just a good reminder of how important energy is to the day-to-day consumer. And, you know, we think, you know, you've seen the administration kind of in the white house have a pretty pivot, you know, basically 180 degree pivot and how, how they kind of treat the sector. So we we think it's, it's going to slow a lot of those dynamics, but it, like Peter said, it it shouldn't lead to a a massive inflow of, of capital, at least,
0: you know, kind of, we, we don't foresee that. Well, one thing that's been interesting, um, Aside from Mills and Royalties Authority, I have another role as of head of business development for the SLU enterprise. They're backed by four large pension funds in the UK, and they're creating a securitized ESG investment product for the Permian Basin. So the the end goal of this is for them to create a, a standardized investment framework for generalists to be able to invest into this product. And a lot of the interest and a lot of the contacts of the CEO are in Europe, and he said that the tune has shifted massively in the last six months. Energy transition without oil and gas will lead to social unrest. And, and Europe is has a front row seat to that. And so that transformation has already happened. And what I would argue was the ones that were the furthest from the pier a year or two ago, i.e. Uh, European institutions. So that's all promising, right? And I think it's just you know playing within the confines of, of what investors can invest in. And I think minerals can check some of those box traditional oil gas is still difficult for a lot of folks but moving on um but you know before we wrap up here I think this is an interesting one and and the question is can private equity still win at the ground game the ground game is more competitive than it's ever been there's more technology there there's more nuanced strategy you can't just go and, and you know take the, the the tax rolls and and cold call and just have a hit rate percentage it, with the cost of uh, private equity, cost of capital, some may argue that the ground game is just not the right play uh, and private equity should use its scale and, and be consolidated on market. But going through the, you know, the, again, kind of a recap of the universe, right? Tailwater royalties, ground game focused. NCAP Minerals slash Pegasus, very big ground game component. They actually just partnered with Tilden Capital again to ramp up their ground game. Uh, Trinity, ground game. Her- rocking WW slash heritage ground game, you know, Kimridge was very ground game focused. And then they did a lot of consolidation, uh, horizon live Oak ground game, Stonehill ground game. So there's still a lot of folks out there, right. That are doing the ground game, hatch and, and Riverbend from, from uh, Ridgemont or ground game. So how do you all see the world? And do you, have you, do you still think there's a role for the ground game and in, in PE or, Is it slowly, uh, you know, is is the door closing on that for for each run? Peter, over to you guys. Uh, You guys are big believers in the ground game. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, no, I I personally love the ground game, but it just ebbs and flows. I mean, you'll go through two, three months where you don't buy anything on the ground and then all of a sudden you'll buy for three plus months. It just, it really does ebb and flow on the ground. And, you know, we've been doing this long enough that we don't become impatient if nothing's happening on the ground, you just have to, you know, believe in your team and continue to execute on a strategy that, you know, that they originally outlined and pivot if you need to pivot. Um, but the ground game is, it's just part of our strategy. The large scale acquisitions, um, come and go, you know, sometimes cash is King. It was last year and it worked out well for us. Public still haven't really been able to raise equity. So that's still, I'd call it, you know, a, an attractive point for our ability to pay cash, but, um, for better, or for worse, the beauty of minerals and royalties is you don't have to sell. You can just hold. And uh, what Eric and team have done, you know, by consolidating all that and holding it is what you go against when you're thinking about buying some of these portfolios. And that's what NCAP did um, and several others. So that's that's why I think it's almost imperative to have a ground game because you never quite know what the market is going to give you. And even though the ground game may not pan out for several months, at least in our experience, it tends to come back. And when it does, you have to react really quickly, deploy it. And then, you know, sometimes the market calms down. What what at least I've generally seen is people deploy their capital and then they're out of money. And that's when prices come down to a more normalized level. And that's generally when we've been successful in executing on our our ground game. Um, But it's continued to surprise me um, how uh, competitive this can be. Um, But once again, it's a low hit rate, high volume game. And you just have to be comfortable with that on the front end and uh, be patient.
0: It, you know, is one of the potential downsides of ground game just scale of capital you can put to work? Is that, you know, for, for a private equity firm that has a, a lot of dry powder? Yeah, I would say that's, that's certainly a, a consideration. Um,
1: but I, I really view it as kind of a two-pronged approach. And cash just kind of comes and goes out of the system. People will need liquidity. Um, and then sometimes you know i I think of the ground game, I mean that could be up to a fifty million dollar deal., uh, it could be a family or a ranch or something like that that is is on the ground, so to speak, but is a chunky deal that not everybody has a check to write that, of that size.
2: yeah, I, th- I think Peter framed it up really well, and you know we I personally believe like to be it's just so inherent to being in the minerals and royalty space, so to really be in it, you, you got to have some type of ground game efforts or capabilities it's such a private market and like i said it does come and go so you got to be exposed to it you know interesting for us you know, were just kind of ramping up so that's not you know we don't have that today and uh, and really our is like there are a lot of really good individuals and teams out there yeah, there's a real part to doing the ground game it's it's like there's there's a whole method to it and we're probably not you know at the you know, sitting here in, in Post Stokes headquarters, like we're not right, like best suited. Our, that's not going to be our core competency, but we'd love to work with people kind of like, you know, the Tilden Capital type dynamics or even, you know, so that there's individuals uh, or teams out there um, that are interested in, uh, in, in partnering. Like we're, we're out there trying to be people that we can work with you know, find the geographies we want to get exposure to and you know see see what we can make happen so that's something that we're definitely actively trying trying to find ways to expand that and get exposure
0: you know, Alan how do you guys view you Phil and Luke and, and Mike over at Providence are, are not doing the ground game so they have a leaner team and a leaner structure and are, are consolidating from from ground game guys uh, that I'm sure that was strategic how would you guys kind of approach the type of team you wanted because uh, Brandon's team did a lot of ground game, right? So it was a bit different.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I'd say, kind of to your kind of question, I, I think private equity can absolutely still win, win at the ground game. And it's as I think about the inefficiency of the minerals market, you know, it's obviously a market that we feel like has gotten a lot more efficient over time since we started first investing over 2017. But the ground game is just more time intensive and, and is kind of less efficient than, say, some some larger scale deals. Um, the biggest trade-off in that is kind of the ability to deploy capital, which you hit on earlier, Tim. And it's one a very time-intensive process. You need the right setup. You need the right software. You need the right resources to do it effectively, um, and to do it at scale is is difficult. So we uh, kind of our focus uh, with Providence is is kind of on um, still capturing you know the inefficiency in the market, but you know, probably not at that same size uh, deal as the ground game. But overall it's a strategy that that we still believe in. And you know, it's kind of about finding the 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 right resources and bandwidth to, to be able to, to be able to succeed in that. So you know we kind of uh, are, are you know have an open mind in it even even though we think there's still a lot of value to be had in, in kind of slightly larger deals.
0: Yeah, I think the other key thing is, is data and having some sort of strategic edge is, is, is key. I think that's been one of the shifting trends over the last few years. Instead of having uh, just having a team out there that is good at, at the land side, it's leveraging uh, the rigs in your portfolio and the other data points, not oppositions, midstream intel, all of it going combined is, is essential, I think. Without that, without some sort of edge, I think it's, you know, private equity doesn't really have a seat at the table for ground game. But because you have all that, um, you can for sure, right? But we're going to go a little long here, but I, I would like to get this one cl- last question in. So throwing it around to the panel, um, let's talk about exits and the different ways you can exit and, and y'all's collective experiences from your own portfolios. I think there's obviously, the large exit you build it up i'm sure management teams is if they can do it in a you know the the right time frame would prefer this because they get incentivized the most off of that but there's letting stuff go out the door along the way and and, pr- and pruning um you know uh, there's maven's really good at this right so maven will, will sell stuff off at the lower end of the market but they wait for that optimal cash flow profile um right when stuff comes online and they they sell it in that window of time. Uh, yeah, let, let's start with with kind of exiting big or letting stuff go along the way or just cash flow distributions. Those three buckets. How does everyone view those those three exit strategies or, or your firsthand experience over the years? All the above, Tim. <laughs> I would say, you know, we've, we've really just tried to be opportunistic.
1: If you can hit a big all cash win, you know, I think we all need to take it very seriously, but we really underwrite the hold forever and distribute on a quarterly basis. If there are ways to bring forward a lot of value, then you just need to weigh the trade-offs. Um, so I would say we, we're generally opportunistic, uh, but we underwrite to hold for life. And that's what, you know, I, I think is one of the best parts of minerals and royalties is you have that ability because it's a low cost asset to manage. And so, um, and you have optionality, do you sell half, a quarter, a third? Uh, there's just a lot of optionality there. So, you know, we're all about protecting the downside and that's one of the reasons why, you know, we thought about partial sales in the past to really accelerate value, protect that downside and then keep the rest. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different ways you can cut it. Um, I would say we'll just continue to be opportunistic, you know, as we have in our option portfolio, which today is, you know, hold and make distributions because publics aren't paying you for the value of your inventory. So it doesn't make sense to sell. So we really just try to look at where the market is and, and what may or may not make sense for our specific assets. Uh, but everybody probably thinks about it a little bit differently.
2: Yeah, for for yeah. Post Energy Capital, yeah, we've had you yeah, know through the funds, the the four funds they've had, they've had all kinds of exits. Interestingly, they have zero exits in minerals and royalties. So all the upstream projects, midstream services, all the things they've done, they've exited generally you know, all those other investments at their kind of natural point where it made sense, intimidating on kind of what they set out to do in the marketplace. So I think that just, I think that hard data kind of speaks to how that you know Post thinks about. Uh, minerals and royalties, and you know, to, to Peter's point, that yeah, and, just, and you look at the, and we, you know, they they did all this exercise over the last 18 months exhaustively, before in advance of you know, completing the uh, the spin up of all the existing assets into the post postic minerals platforms, because it's important uh, to, uh, to to have, get all the markers, make sure you're doing the right thing for your LPs and for the management teams that worked so hard to put those assets together and make sure they've got the right options and outcomes that are appropriate and, and it just wasn't there in terms of the compelling value relative to you know, what we can internally create uh, via a long-term whole platform and you know, that public market it'll be to our collective benefit so excited to see desert peak and hopefully there'll be others and, and they can over time you know kind of crack the code on, on getting enough liquidity uh, we did an internal uh, edition of you know just all the the main us public minerals players and include inclusive of desert peak you know our tally was in the kind of 14 billion dollar range and you know conoco phillips alone is like almost 140 billion dollars and then so our 10x and then you get uh then take the next two uh pioneer and eog and that's another 140 billion dollars Menace, you know another 10x so for it that you know we're, we don't need to get probably to those numbers but it needs it needs to get a lot bigger uh, to be, yeah, to hopefully generate that premium, that trading liquidity, that'll be pretty interesting if that can evolve uh, over time. And um, yeah, that that might create a little more. Yeah, that that would influence the calculus to have that option.
0: What What about exiting to publics? Can we get you know some commentary around that? PE overhang is a very real thing that publics, you know, they're challenged with. I think for them to continue to grow. Private equity portfolio acquisitions are really one of the only games in town for them um, when they want to do large scale acquisitions. But there's challenges because, you know, a lot of these deals haven't been all cash. And so now as a private equity firm, you're you're a large interest owner in in these in these public stocks. And then if you decide to to get out, it takes a while because you don't have the liquidity. And then Typically, and we've seen this with a lot of publics. to so happen with Brigham, happened with Kimball. As private equity comes out, it it really kind of crashes the stock in the short term. So that's a it's a challenge. How do you guys approach it? Is it just par for the course? It's it's it is what it is, or or what?
3: No, look, I, I'm I'm happy to speak to it. It's obviously something that we're living through real time uh, on Desert Peak and kind of thinking through all the challenges you you alluded to to uh, right there, Tim and. I'd say kind of first of all, it's it's still a growing market in terms of public investors on um, on the mineral side, like Eric alluded to earlier, but it's just much smaller than kind of the total energy equity universe and the energy equity universe as a percentage of the SP is just much lower than it has been historically. So it's, you know, it's thinking through the trade-offs on the public side of of how do you create liquidity in the stock, which I think is important in ultimately getting larger long onlys to, to step into the name. You know, for instance, in Desert Peak, it's about eighty five percent across uh, the three main sponsors. So there's only, even though it's over a two billion dollar kind of t- uh, business, it's only fifteen percent of that is publicly available float. You know, I think the the good thing is all all the sponsors are. There's no imperative to sell and kind of believe in the long-term value creation of the business. And you know, you look at the multiples and and cash flow yields on the screen, and it's still cheap relative to where they've been at, you know, historically. But thinking through kind of the best way to transition stock over over time to larger holders, whether it's through, you know, kind of coordinated block trades across across sponsors, you know, at, at a slight discount to to larger. Um, larger account holders that are long only, you know, more, you know, quote unquote permanent capital um, is certainly one way to do it, but it's something that's kind of a evolving challenge in the space in the public markets. Cause it's, it's still, you know, as we saw in desert peak, even for kind of the current price environment, taking up a, a, a company public, it's just not easy to get an energy p- company public in, in today's environment. I think as we move through 2022 uh, if the cash flow yields hold up and the numbers on all our models kind of show up in the in, in the pockets of investors, I think that'll that'll do a lot in terms of credibility of the space and and bringing people in, you know kind of into into the space in a bigger way. But still, it's still kind of a a prove it story for for a lot of the investor base. So certainly something for the whole sector to kind of work through over the next year and
0: Peter, any quick
1: comments before we wrap up on that topic? Yeah, no, I think. Eric and Alan did a good job. The, the only thing that we've really seen is when we have had to take stock, just being really disciplined and kind of being a low percentage of the float on a daily basis and kind of dollar cost averaging out over time, but it just takes a long time. So it's something that, you know, you absolutely don't want to impact the stock. And so you have to be patient. It's generally going to low dollars. So we've had to do that in the past before. And, you know, for better or for worse, you're, you're just going to dollar cost average over a considerable time period. So um, it's something that I think as the sector continues to perform well, uh, specifically in a h- higher commodity price environment, investors will come back. Liquidity has improved dramatically over the last couple of years. Um, then that will that that will certainly help itself over time. And I think as the publics are more acquisitive and they issue equity, then that just has a domino effect, um, which you know we've seen in the past, and I would imagine we'll we'll see over the next couple of years here.
0: Tim, thank you for having us. Yeah, uh, thank you guys. I know we ran a little late. Appreciate your time, and and thank you everyone who tuned in. If you're a minerals exec or an investor and we haven't spoken, I'd love to have you reach out and, and jump on an intro call and, and keep in touch. But until then, check out the podcast and the YouTube channel and LinkedIn and all that good jazz. But uh, until next time, thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate thank it. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Authority is a specialist advisory firm focused exclusively on the minerals and royalty space for oil and gas and renewables. With our leading content platform and thought leadership, our team is continually looking to bring awareness to the mineral space in order to help investors and companies buy and sell deals and form new partnerships. If you're interested in scheduling a call to explore ways the Minerals and Royalties Authority can help your team through our offering of consulting services for business development, marketing, capital raising, and A&D, then please send me an email at tim at mineralsauthority.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks, and see you next time.